Welcome to the Homesteaders of America podcast, where we encourage simple living, hard work, natural health care, real food, and building an agrarian society. If you're pioneering your way through modern noise and conveniences, and you're an advocate for living a more sustainable and quiet life, this podcast is for you. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm your host, Amy Fuel, and I'm the founder of the Homesteaders of America organization and annual events. If you're not familiar with us, we are a resource for homesteading education and online support, and we even host a couple of in-person events each year, with our biggest annual event happening right outside the nation's capital here in Virginia every October. Check us out online at homesteadersofamerica.com, follow us on all of our social media platforms, and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can be the first to know about all things HOA. That's short for Homesteaders of America. Don't forget that we have an online membership that gives you access to thousands, yes, literally thousands of hours worth of information and videos. It also gets you discount codes, an HOA decal sticker when you sign up, and access to event tickets before anyone else. All right, let's dive into this week's episode. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining me on the Homesteaders of America podcast. How are you doing? Hey, Amy, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who don't know, Paul is local to me. Like we literally live like in the same county area town uh, and he has an awesome greenhouse and business. So Paul, let's start there. Tell us a little bit about who you are and then we'll dive into what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, I feel really blessed because I have been able to actually grow up in a community of, of, of my whole family garden. So my grandfather, he um, was a subsistence farmer. His his parents lived in Southern Virginia and they, they farmed to survive. And he went to school to be a, a dairy extension agent. And then he was also a horticulture extension agent here locally, and and he he grew a large garden every year, and and he started a, a greenhouse and garden center business as kind of a, a side hobby, and then both of my parents also gardened from about the time I was four. They started gardening. Some of the earliest pictures of me are planting beans with my dad. And then about the time I was thirteen or fourteen, they started expanding their garden and selling vegetables at the local farmers market. And they that this past year was their last year doing that. Okay. So all through high school, I got the ability to go out there and and just um, garden with them. And then when I graduated high school, I went to Virginia Tech and majored in horticulture. And that is you know really cool. It's really a blessing because it kind of gave me some of the backstory. Like I don't think it's essential. Like. I'm not recommending that everyone go to horticulture school right. just to <laughs> learn how to plant some seeds, but it's what I wanted to do for a living. It, it's helpful in some ways to have kind of the like the background of why like I had to suffer through, mm-hmm. you know, soil chemistry and plant physiology and some other, you know, not very fun classes, but it kind of <laughs> is helpful sometimes. Right. So then when I graduated, I actually started running my grandfather's greenhouse business. And so I've been doing that for 12 years. You know, we're a local garden center. We kind of specialize in doing a little bit of everything, um, but we do a a fair number of uh, vegetable transplants for people in the community, in- including yep. Amy. She, uh, you buy That's quite a right. lot from us. So <laughs> we buy, we, I guess we plant probably about 50,000 vegetable and herb seedlings every year. Wow. And we do, we do all the vegetables here and um, from seed. And it's, it's cool interacting with the community because our area has a lot of gardeners. So we get a lot of questions and people will come back to us, you know, how come my tomatoes are not doing, you know, X, Y, Z or so I feel like that's kind of a really cool thing. Cause I still have a, a connection to the plants even right. kind of throughout the season, but you know, like I, I'm big on, you know, always trying to keep learning. Like I'm, I just love learning. I love, I, I read a book, you know, just the other day and I was like, wow, I learned something new. Like, so it's, you know, you never stop. So yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite kind of person is the person who like never stops learning because we can always teach each other something. For those of you who don't know, Paul is actually one of our speakers at our HOA conference in October as well. Uh, so he, you've been with us for the last couple of years, I guess. Um, and everybody just loves Paul. Loves, I hear all kinds of fun things about Paul's talks. So uh, <laughs> well, if, you're thank coming, you. yeah, if you're coming to the conference this year, definitely check him out. 
Okay, so we've talked about who you are, what your credentials are. Uh, for those of you who are interested in learning more about Paul's grandfather, we actually have a video on our YouTube channel of Mason uh, and his story and the story of the greenhouse that Paul runs and everything. So you can check that out. So today's topic, we're, we're talking specifically about starting seeds and transplanting, because this is a question I think every homesteader has. And Paul, you being a business owner, but also a homesteader, I thought you'd be the perfect person to kind of talk about this, especially uh, what we were talking about off, off recording. Uh, you want to kind of add some things to this. So we're going to go down the list of questions and I think this will be helpful for you guys. So uh, to get started, Paul, what should people know about gardening in different climate zones? Um, so, you know, obviously the East coast is way different than the West coast and even the Midwest. So what should people right. know about that? Yeah. I mean, we're blessed. Our country is a wonderful country, but it's really big. So right. I'm going to, you know, I've, I've lived all my life in Virginia. So take that into consideration. If, if you're in a different state, you know, you might have to alter some of the dates. And I'm going to try to speak in very general right. terms to try to kind of make it applicable to everyone. But first of all, you know, seed starting is so much fun. And this is just going to be, this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about it. But I think the the main thing, the, the kind of two, the two dates to, to keep in mind are, you know, your last frost date for your area, which is an average, you know, you might look it up. And for us, I think it's May 10th here in central Virginia, we're zone 7A or 6B, depending on yeah. who you ask. You know, it's around May 10th. And that's an average over the last 50 years. They And there's room for, you know, it can flex on, on either side. I track it and I just keep, you know, a little garden log and I write down because it's helpful to kind of know from year to year what you're working with. Right. But you can Google it for your area. Type in your, you know, say Google last frost date or frost free date and then the name of the closest town to you and it and try to get an idea or you could ask uh, another gardening um, friend near you and keep in mind that for some things that's you know you're not necessarily going to be planting things in the garden then but that is kind of a, a target and then the second date would be and I've, I've, this is a term I've kind of created myself I call it a, a weather window and it's it's kind of a little bit nebulous, mm -hmm. but it's the idea that sometime in the early spring, there's going to be a period of relative warmth. And it, by relative warmth, I mean, it doesn't, it's not necessarily warm, but it's warmer. Mm -hmm. And that's the window for all your cool season crops like carrots and cabbage and kale, because you don't have to wait until frost-free date for those items. Now, and some, the farther north you go, I think, I've not gardened in the north, but the farther north you go, mm -hmm. I believe the closer those two dates are going to be to each other. Like the frost-free date and the weather window might be within just a week or two of each other. Uh, to give you an example here, usually in late March or early April, there's a period of warmer weather, and that's when I'll put mm -hmm. out transplants of cabbage and I'll start potatoes and I'll start carrots and I'll sow radishes and things like that. And usually it's a, you know, several days. It's not, you know, it's not just one day. It's a, it's, you know, you look in the 10 day forecast and you're like, huh, it's not going to frost for the next eight days. Yeah. And the highs are in the sixties and the lows at night are only in the, you know, uh, low forties or maybe upper thirties. And I'm like, all right, time to get in the garden, till yeah. it up plant some cabbage. Right. So that's kind of a, it's a little, you kind of have to pay attention to the weather and that it's a little bit, it, it can vary so much. And then of course in the fall, you know, there's also the last or the first frost in the fall. And mm -hmm. that's not as critical in terms of, it just is kind of like the end game for when a lot of things are productive. But then what I like to do is kind of break things down into groups. So you've got vegetables that are frost tolerant, like cabbage, and then you've got vegetables that are frost intolerant, which would be tomatoes, where a frost will kill them. Right. And so those are your two broad groups. And then you've also got vegetables that are direct sow, like beans and peas, carrots, and then you've got things mm -hmm. that are transplanted. So today we're going to be predominantly talking about transplanting things, but about 
probably half of the vegetables that we grow in our garden are direct sow. And so mm-hmm. those dates are, you know, you have to kind of figure out when you're going to sow so that they sprout. Like, for example, beans, you would want to sow them so that by the time they've sprouted, danger of frost is passed. So you could wait till May 10th. Some people push it a little bit earlier, like in my area, May 10th. Some people might decide to plant beans, you know, May 1st. But, you know, there is a you run a risk because once mm-hmm. you've sowed that seed, you you can't stop that clock. So right. if you get a yeah, late frost. Yeah, we did. I remember so, it was just a couple years ago yep, and everybody was covering their gardens. Yep. I mean, it was horrible. I think it was like May 15th yep. or something when, when we had that. And frost. that's exactly it. It's an average. So, and maybe I'll touch on this again, but what I do, you know, come about May 5th, you can, you know, we have the benefit of wonderful meteorology, I can't even say that word, meteorological <laughs> reports where you can look at the 10-day right. forecast and you can say, okay, there's a, there's a period of cold weather five days from now. And then what I do is I hold back. Mm. So I use that 10-day forecast coming up to the last frost-free date as a tool because I'll either hold back or I'll go ahead. Like if I, if it, if it's May okay. 5th, and the 10-day forecast shows there's no frost, you're probably safe to plant. I mean, it, it could go wrong, mm-hmm. but you're probably fine. At least that's for our area. I mean, you adjust those dates for, right. for the viewer's area. But, you know, if you come up to May 5th and there's like, you know, five days from now, it's like thir- a 36-degree night, that's way too close for comfort. So mm-hmm. I'll wait. Yeah. And then as the forecast gets closer, oh, yeah, it's definitely going to frost. And then once that frost is yeah. passed, look at the 10-day forecast again, and then it's like, oh, yep, yep, now we're clear. So, you know, that's a great yeah. tool. But, yeah, so for climates, you know, you know, the north, obviously, you're going to be starting seeds a lot later than the south. You know, Miami, mm-hmm. Florida, you're going to be – you're probably starting seeds now, would be my guess, yeah. if, if you don't already have things in the ground. But, um, you know, I'm shooting for eight weeks from the time that I sow a seed to the time that I put it in the garden, that's kind of a, a good time frame. So I look at when I want to put something in the garden. Like if I want to put cabbage in the garden in early April, I count back eight weeks and that puts me back all of March, all of February, early February. So I could probably safely start seeds of cabbage uh, about February 1st. Tomatoes, you know, if I'm shooting for um, I don't tend to plant tomatoes as soon as all frost is gone. I actually tend to wait a couple days for mm-hmm. the ground to warm up. So I'm shooting for May 15th, which means I need to start two months prior to that, which is March 15th. Okay. So that's kind of how I do my my mad math in my head. It's hard to hold back transplants. They tend to get mm-hmm. leggy really quick. And the longer right. they're in those small pots, the more transplant shock they have. So it would be, it's almost better to wait. I, I highly recommend waiting. Like if you, if you're on the fence, you should wait a week to start seeds. Like, and that's really hard to do. It's a yeah. um, psychological warfare <laughs> to a <Yeah>. gardener. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that once before. I, I think we actually have you talked about this in one of the videos we posted a couple of years ago where you, you mentioned you always, basically you said it's, it's better to start your tomatoes in March than to start your tomatoes in oh, February yeah. because you're still, it's at the end of the day, it's all going to still come when it's going to come, you know? So why not, since we're talking about tomatoes, let's go to that question. Right. Like when is the best time for tomatoes? Cause a lot of people want to plant them right now. Like I know people who are starting tomatoes in January. Yeah. So I do too. <clears throat> God bless them. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, this is, it's like, it's a psychological game. It's not, you know, it's hard to hold back. And I've, I've already, you know, I'm sitting in, in, the, in the sofa at night reading seed catalogs, spending too I much know, money on I seeds, know. all that kind of good stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, so great, great experiment. Start a tomato, start a seed January 1st, start another one February 1st, start another one March 1st and April 1st. I would bet you a hundred dollars, you will get fruit from all four of them within a week or two of each other. And the reason why is because 
here in the northern hemisphere, you know, this does not apply if you're closer to the equator. But the farther north you go, mm-hmm. the shorter your days are in the winter. So, like, right now, the sun is coming up, you know, I don't know, 630, and it's setting at, at 6. So we have, you know, mm-hmm. we have a limited period of sunlight. And the angle on the sun is low, so the quality of light is less and the quantity is less. So things grow slower. And so I, I determined from a professional level with the garden center that January is basically a wasted month um, and for almost everything, in, including tomatoes. Right. And my, I took very careful notes of when I sowed seeds and when things were ready for sale for transplants going into our customers' gardens. And I, I pretty well deduced that there was not a reason to start anything in January. There just simply is not enough sunlight. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in, you know, Florida or Southern California or maybe Southern Texas, yeah, you probably could. But for the Northern states, especially, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's just not enough sunlight. So I intend to start my yeah. seeds of tomatoes about March 15th. Now, the variety I grow is not a, a quick to produce variety, it's a little bit longer of a of a of a time frame, but I should still get tomatoes by the middle of July, right? Which is, you know, it's it's just a it's a matter of personal preference. Do you want to absolutely be the first person on the block with a tomato, or do you want to see also in my garden? So I I mostly do raised beds, and I have things in the garden right now, mm-hmm. so. I'm not really pushing to get things planted too early because I try to get two crops out of every bed. So the bed that the tomatoes are going into this year is empty right now. But Mm -hmm. last year, that bed had carrots in it, overwintered carrots. And so I didn't finish harvesting the carrots until like the middle of April. So there's not really like a push to get stuff back in there. So, Mm -hmm. you know... I'm not really, right. I don't have to have the first tomato on the block. You know, having the first tomato is a lot of work because you have to mm-hmm. cover it. You have to wrap, you know, if it's going to frost, you have to protect it. And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I just, it's a lot of work. I'd rather yeah, that plant it and walk away. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. Like the hundred tomato plants I decided would be a good idea to plant that year. And I realized that, you know, even so this year we planted, I think we planted maybe 27 tomato plants this year. And I got more off of those 27 tomato plants this year than I did off the hundred that I did a few years ago because they were easier to maintain and they weren't as much work. And so I just got way more out of them. So it's kind of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (sighs) Okay. So getting back on the seed starting train for people who are starting seeds indoors, what type of soil should do you recommend people to start with and kind of just walk us through that process of how you do it? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing I would say is not all soil is made the same. They have mm-hmm. a lot of similar ingredients. You'll, If you look on the bag, a lot of times they will list the ingredients. Usually peat, sphagnum peat is a major component. You'll sometimes see bark, coconut core, which is um, the outer husk of a coconut that's been um, ground up. That's another ingredient. You'll see limestone, you'll see fertilizer, you'll see wetting agents, you'll see moisture holding pellets, you'll see uh, vermiculite, perlite. Well, I'm going to try to break this down and make it very simple. So uh, sphagnum peat and coconut core and bark are sterile and weed free by just by design. There's not usually seeds on the side of trees or in the the peat bogs. And so those ingredients have been chosen because they are uh, weed seed free usually. And then to that, they will add things that will help with drainage. So perlite, vermiculite, and bark all help promote drainage. You'll also see fertilizer in most potting soils because seedlings do need fertilizer almost as soon as they come up. And so, and we'll talk about that later more. But what you can do if you're wondering about the quality of your mix is you can open it up and you can just fill a pot full of soil and set it in a warm place and see if any weeds do sprout. Because if you, you shouldn't see weed sprout if it's a good quality mix. 
you should also not see any fungus gnats. Fungus gnats are everywhere. They're even in the best mixes in small numbers, but you shouldn't see hundreds. Like when you open a bag, you shouldn't see hundreds of fungus gnats coming out. Now, a trick that some people don't know is the mosquito dunks. Those have a bacteria in them that kills mosquitoes and you can put them on your pond. Well, that bacteria also kills fungus gnats. So what you can do is you can put one of those mosquito dunks in your watering can, and every time you water, you'll be putting that bacteria into the soil, which will hopefully kill the mosquito gnat, the um, fungus gnats. But yeah, you shouldn't. It shouldn't smell foul when you open the bag. It could, it should smell earthy, you know, like a good a good smell. Now, yeah. my ideal seed starting mix, which I don't use because. I, I, I can't afford it. Um, uh, it's like, well, you know, oh hey, everyone has to have dreams. That's right. So That's if you, right. if you really, this is what I, I would do if I, if I really had the ability, I would do a 50, 50 mix of worm castings and a peat, a sphagnum peat based potting soil. The worm castings, or you could use compost, like a really finely screened compost. I wouldn't buy a compost. I would say that would probably be something you need to make yourself and then run through a fine screen. But mm-hmm. that would give you a lot of nutrition and a lot of the good bacteria and fungi that would get your seedlings off to a great start. But compost and worm castings is really heavy. It doesn't have good drainage. So then mixing in peat moss would give you the drainage that you need. Commercially, we start all of our seedlings in a commercial potting soil mix. And I'll tell you, there's definitely a difference in quality from the professional mixes to Mm -hmm. the retail mixes. The ones you can buy at the big box stores are pretty well junk (laughs) compared to what we're getting. Like as professionals, we're paying for it. But, you know, we're paying for, for quality. But if you had the ability to go to a garden center or a greenhouse and ask them for a professional quality. Don't buy a little bag. You probably have to buy a larger quantity, but there there definitely is, you will notice a difference in quality. We use the brand uh, ProMix, but there are other brands that are, that are equivalent. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, you know, and it's hard because you can have the best soil, but if you don't have the conditions for starting seeds, mm-hmm you're still going to run into problems. I would almost rather have a mediocre soil and have the ideal conditions than have the best soil and mediocre conditions, if that makes sense. So what, so what are those best conditions? Like, so what do you recommend? You and I were talking about, this would be a good place to, to kind of talk about that, you yeah. know, greenhouses or a seed setup, kind of talk about that. What does a good setup look like? And then uh, yeah. what can people do at home? Right. So the best setup is a greenhouse, <laughs> as you as you can probably mm-hmm. guess. The worst setup is probably your closet with grow lights. That's probably the worst possible mm-hmm. scenario. Second best would be a sunroom and um, a south facing, a very, very bright south facing room. So, yes, the thing to remember about seedlings is they, they need a couple things. They need light and natural sunlight is very, very bright, many times stronger than even the best quality uh, grow lights. Then they need moisture in order to sprout and not too much, not too little. And then temperature. So the temperature requirements, I really recommend heat pads. They're just, they give you the level of control you need for starting things like tomatoes and peppers. It's really hard to start those things under your house temperatures because Mm -hmm. you're, you don't want to be heating your house to 80 degrees. Right. At least your pocketbook doesn't want to be. And then they do need, they do need fertilizer. And, and that's kind of overlooked step sometimes pretty much from about the time, about seven days after a seed sprouts, they need nutrition of some sort and they can either get it from the soil or they can get it from you applying it in various different forms, organic, chemical, you know, there's a huge range of options there. But if you are starting in a potting soil that you've purchased, even if it says on the bag, feeds for nine months or whatever, 
they are going to need more nutrition than that. At least that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. So going back to light. So light is probably the most important thing in order to start seeds. So and this is the classic you know, why are my seedlings leggy? And leggy refers to the fact that they are taller than they ought to be. And usually accompanying that, there will be a bending of the stem towards the light. The plant is hungry for light. Mm -hmm. Remember, think about cows eat grass, plants eat sunlight. Yeah. If you are starving your plant, it is going to be looking for food. And the way it looks for food is to bend towards the light. Mm -hmm. So that's a sign that it's not, you're starving your plant. You're a terrible person. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm joking. You're horrible. You're a plant Um, abuser. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm joking. Um, and, And, you know, and so part of that goes back to the timing, you know, in January, it's, there's not as much light. So if you're starting seeds too early, it's really hard to give them enough light. Mm-hmm. The longer you wait, the more light they have. So, you know, and yes, you can use grow light. If you do decide to use grow lights, they need to be hung so that the top of the grow light is about, I think it's like four to five inches above yeah, it's, it's pretty the top close. of the leaf. Yeah. So you want to get them very, very close. Like it looks weird. Mm-hmm. You're like, this isn't right. But the reason why is because the closer the seedling gets to the light, the more light is available to it. So that's important. And you want to run them for long days, like 14, 16 hours. So because quantity is important as well. But natural sunlight is is the best. And, you know, we just can't mm-hmm. replicate the intensity and the quality of the sunlight. So at the end, I'll, I'll talk some more about um, some alternatives to kind of try to use some more of the natural sunlight if you don't really have a, a greenhouse. Yeah. But moisture is important. And, you know, moisture is what activates the seed to start sprouting. A dry seed won't sprout. But then once the seed has sprouted, mm-hmm. it needs consistent, even moisture. Not It doesn't want to dry out and it doesn't want to get so soggy wet. And Soggy wet is what causes dampening off, which is just a name that we've given a fungal disease that causes the base of the stem to rot. So you'll see that the seedlings laying over on the surface of the soil, they've literally just been chewed off at the ground level by this fungus. And um, that's usually a result of either too much moisture in the soil or too high humidity in the growing area or a combination of both. And then thinking about temperature. So I like to think of temperature about like an engine, like gasoline is the fuel. And then your accelerator pedal is what gives the fuel to the engine. The sunlight is the fuel. Mm -hmm. And then temperature is the accelerator pedal that feeds that fuel. So everything moves faster, the warmer it gets. So, for example, you can start tomatoes at 70 degrees. It's possible. It mm-hmm. will take probably 14 days. At 80 degrees, it takes eight days. So you shave six days off of wow. your growing period. So every plant has an ideal range, and you can look those up. And some seed catalogs do have them, and that's very helpful because they have a, a, a an ideal temperature as well as a minimum temperature and a maximum temperature. Some plants do have a maximum temperature, like spinach will not germinate over 80 degrees. Wow. It just won't It just won't germinate. And then there's probably some leeway there. Maybe it's 85. I don't know. Right. But the point being, you can't germinate above a certain temperature. And then also, if you have things that like it cold, too warm they will get leggy because they're they're using the sunlight and they're growing so fast that they will actually stretch. They will become leggy even if there's adequate light. Mm-hmm. So cabbage and kale is a great example of that. You need to start them actually at like 45 to 65 is perfect. 60 would be like the absolute best. But then tomatoes, you can't, I mean, you could, I guess, maybe start a tomato at 60 degrees, but probably take three weeks. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just things take so long. So (laughs) I always, you know, if it's taking longer than about 10 days for a seed to sprout, there's probably something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like either the temperature is not right or the seed is old 
or something. Something's up because I'd like to see germination right. in eight to 10 days. Yeah, I feel like I normally I think I would say most homesteaders kind of feel like they see germination within the first you know week and a half. So yeah. normally if I don't see anything, I'm like, oh, that one's a dead and I throw it out and right. <laughs> try again. And that's very possible. And seed does have a shelf life mm -hmm. and there's some seed that does not keep well, even if you store it in refrigeration. And carrots, I think, are one of them. I buy new carrot seed every year. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it has a long shelf life. Okay. So oh. some things last forever. I think tomatoes, I mean, I've Probably I feel like tomatoes last years. forever. Yeah, for <laughs> real. Like I'm still planting tomato seeds that I've had for like 10 years and they're still yep, popping no right up. I mean, probably less and less, like each right. year it's a little less, but. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to bring you a word from one of our 2023 Homesteaders of America sponsors. This sponsor is McMurray Hatchery. And for those of you who have attended some of our events, you know they are the Homesteaders Hatchery. I think one of our favorite things about HOA sponsors is that they often become friends and like family. Something many people may not realize is that we truly take pride in our sponsors and we know when someone has a quality product to offer and McMurray Hatchery is one of those people. So let me tell you a bit about them as you start preparing for your chicks on your homestead. Murray McMurray officially started his chicken business in 1917. He had always been interested in poultry as a young man and particularly enjoyed showing birds at the local state fairs. He was in the banking business at this time and sold baby chicks through the bank to area farmers and hobbyists. When incubators became available, he was able to purchase several small buckeye incubators to hatch and sell his own stock. In 1919, he sent out his first catalog and price list. Today, 99% of McMurray Hatchery's business is done through their catalog, which serves the small farm flock and the hobbyist. Baby chicks have always been the main staple of the business. Today, ducklings, goslings, guinea keats, turkey poults, peafowl, and game birds are hatched and shipped through the mail. Orders for poultry books, medicine, incubators, hatching eggs, equipment, and other poultry-related products are shipped daily from the hatchery. Many of the items are shipped to rural areas where these products are sometimes hard to find. McMurray is making an effort to be a one-stop poultry shop, so make sure you check them out at mcmurrayhatchery.com, and thanks, McMurray, for being a sponsor of HOA. Right. Okay, so we're starting our seeds. We've got our soil mix. We, we've got the lighting situation under control. Now our plants are growing. And so let's say it's, you know, it's time to transplant them outside. If you're like me, don't be like Amy. You're like, let's throw these plants outside and we're just going to make y'all tough and we're going to harden you off in like a day and a half. Right. <laughs> but what's, what's the proper thing that we're supposed to do for transplanting? Yeah. <clears throat> so... Going back to this concept of utilizing the highly skilled people that are in the at the weather station down the road, what I look for is you know a, a period of of weather where it's going to be pleasant. And um, actually, wind is probably the more damaging thing to transplants because you're not going to plant a tomato out right before it's calling for frost. Right. You know, you're going to look for you know, it to be past the frost date. But then, you know, if you have a period of really, really windy weather, I've seen, you know, transplants that just literally get beat to death. Like the cold didn't kill them. It just, they just got yeah. pounded against the soil and just, they just got ripped to shreds. So it'd be nice to have a period of calm weather. And then the other thing is, you know, planting right after a frost, sometimes the ground is still really cold. So, you know, you just, Put your finger in the soil, and if it feels mm -hmm. cold, it is cold, and wait a couple of days. And you know, if we get a couple of days of 80 degrees, that will warm up the soil. Right. And then, especially with peppers and cucumbers, they're just so fragile. Right. But to harden things off, the, so the hardening off is a, a gardening term where we expose the plant to gradually more and more adverse conditions so that the plant, the plants will thicken their stems and their leaves. And that process really ought to take about five to seven days, a day and a half. You don't see a, a large change in stem thickness. Now, some years you don't have to harden off. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you had a year where you had, you know, it was May 10th and it was like going to be 80 degrees for the next five days and, you know, warm sunshine, warm breezes. Yeah, just plant them out. They're fine. Right. 
where it's a little bit trickier is where, you know, you have one day that it's 75, the next day is 55, and then it's 75, and then 85, and then 65. Right. Like that's, and that's yeah. for us in Virginia, that's classic mm-hmm. spring weather. So what would be the best thing to do would be in the, the two weeks before you intend to plant them out. So for us, that would be starting maybe late April or early May. You know, your home, it's Saturday, it's 75 degrees, but it's going to frost tonight. Mm-hmm. You put your flats of transplants out on the patio, they get sunlight, and you leave them out there for maybe an hour or two. The next day, you put them out for maybe three or four hours. The day after that, you put them out for all day. But if it's going to be very windy, maybe you set them in a place where they're sh- protected from the wind like against mm-hmm. a shed or against a, a wall or something. So you're you're exposing them to sunlight. You, you would always want to be putting them in direct sun. But then, you know, you're gradually increasing the amount of time that they're outside. And then, but you're still protecting them from, if it's going to be a very, very cold day, you're not going to put them out. Right. If it's going to be a very windy day, maybe you just put them out for an hour. Like it's not, you're not, you're very gradually easing them into it. And eventually... By the time you're ready to plant, maybe you've left them out for several days all day long and you've just brought them in at night. But maybe if there's a night, you know, this has happened to me before where you'll have a couple nights where the temperature will be in the 50s at night. Mm-hmm. But then the next night it frosts. Right. Well, you could leave them out for those 50 degree nights. That would be fantastic. That would really help them just you know, form a really good thick stem and then you just move them inside for that one night. And then after that, then you're safe to plant them out and you just have a lot higher quality of a plant. Now, this is good for most plants. Cucumbers and squash and melons are really sensitive to cold. So you have to be even more careful. I've seen cucumbers actually die from cold at temperatures it it was warm it it wasn't frosting it was like mm-hmm. 38 degrees and they were as dead as a doornail so you wow. know frost yes will kill plants but you know for cucumbers and and sometimes you know peppers can be pretty fragile too so you definitely mm-hmm. you know you want to be a little bit more careful with them but you do want to harden them off you know for your cold loving things like cabbage and kale and spinach you can be a lot more aggressive. Like you could set them outside on a day that's like 40 and leave them out there all day. And that'd be great Mm -hmm. for them. You know, so you have a little more flexibility in terms of temperature, but that's kind of the idea behind hardening off. Ideally. Yeah. It'd be at least, you know, five, seven days, something like that. Okay. So once you, you've hardened these off and you put them into the ground, is there anything special that you do once you transplant them into the ground, like, you know, I hear people say, well, you should put an egg in with your tomatoes to help your tomatoes grow, you know, random things like that. Are there, is there anything special we need to do or are there any old tricks that you do that you want to share? Yeah, I've actually never heard the raw egg before, but egg shells have calcium and tomatoes are mm-hmm. prone to get a disease. It's actually not a disease. It looks like a disease, but it's actually a calcium deficiency, and it's called blossom in rot. Well, the rot is actually the cell walls of the tomato breaking down because they don't have the calcium they need to to maintain structure. So, and that manifests itself as this blackened, sunken area on the bottom of the fruit. So you go out to pick a tomato, it looks ripe, and then you pick it and you realize that the whole Mm -hmm. bottom end is all blackened and shriveled. And that's um, actually a calcium deficiency. And it manifests itself, you know, by midsummer. But the time to add calcium is actually when you plant or even the fall before. So, you know, if you have the ability to add some calcium now, go for it. Calcium is um, Mm. notoriously slow acting. And other things that have calcium besides eggshells would be um, oyster shell that you use for chickens. So if you have chickens and you give them that um, to help them with their with their eggs, then you could add that you mix that into the soil. And so I usually do about a cup of that per plant when I 
and I do it either before I plant or at the time of planting. So that's a good trick. Another thing you see people do that there's some confusion about would be you'll hear people talk about planting tomatoes deep. Mm-hmm. So that is you, it's optional. It is not necessary. If your tomato plant is very leggy and you want it to be more compact, you can plant it deep. Mm-hmm. It will root as it goes up the stem. Now, I have the last couple of years been experimenting because I have had very, very low levels of foliar leaf diseases on my tomato plants. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I know it's not because of any great brilliance of mine. I think I'm inadvertently doing something or I've stumbled on a really great variety. So I'm wondering if there might be some benefit to not planting tomatoes deep. And the reason why is because these leaf diseases, they are spread when a raindrop splashes on the soil and then the bacteria or the fungus Mm-hmm. then splashes from the soil up onto the leaf. Well, if the if the leaf is on the plant, the lowest leaf is down near the, the soil, then it has a very short distance to go. If it if the leaves don't start for 8 to 10 inches up the plant, then the disease doesn't maybe can't make that jump. Right. So what I have been doing, I don't usually have leggy tomatoes because I am starting mine in a greenhouse. But what I will do is mm-hmm. I will remove the bottom leaves so that I've got about eight inches of stem bare. And then I will I plant them at the regular level. And then I will put a, level, a layer of mulch on the whole bed to try to break the connection so that when a raindrop hits the ground, it hits mulch and not bare clay soil. So I don't know, and maybe someone can chime in and tell me the science behind why it is, but the last three years I've had, you know, I've been eating tomatoes far up into the fall and the plants have still looked very healthy. So, Mm -hmm. and it could be there's other factors that I haven't even thought of yet. So I don't know. Let's do some experimenting. (laughs) I feel like there's some truth to that too, because we, we do the same thing now for years. My tomato plants have been leggy, so I have planted them deep. But what I do is I'll, I'll cut the, all the bottom leaves off first before I plant them. And then I'll even prune them up even more. And the plants that don't have leaves close to the ground always do way better than the ones that don't have, you know, the leaves close to the ground. So. Yeah. Now correlation is not causation, but we got to, we got to figure this out. (laughs) So, um, another thing that, um, and this is not about transplanting, but another thing to keep in mind would be my dad and I were talking the other day about beans. We both have found that fertilizing beans when they're real young is real helpful. And that's kind of not always the normal advice because beans do fix nitrogen. And so they're able to make their own nitrogen. But my dad has found that they're not, when they're young, they can't Mm -hmm. make their own nitrogen. It takes time for that. It's a symbiotic relationship with bacteria. And it takes a month or so for that bacteria to multiply. So in that first month, they are hungry. Mm -hmm. And so we always try to give them a little bit of fertilizer, whether it be compost or whether it be miracle Grow or or whatever, whatever your choice is there. Um, but I'm a big fan about mulching the whole garden right? to keep down weeds. I mostly garden in raised beds, but I do have some uh, in ground areas as well. But I mulch, uh, with wood chips, the whole garden gets it. There's a few things that's really hard to get around like carrots, right? like direct sowed carrots or direct sowed beets or something like that. It's kind of hard. It's, it's just difficult, but pretty much everything else gets a layer of, um, Mm -hmm. mulch and you reduce the weed load and you also hold in moisture. That's yeah. super helpful. Yeah. When we had a smaller garden at our other house, we did that. We would mulch every year and it breaks down really well. And just, it, it was probably the most fertile soil that we had. What was, were the gardens that we mulched all the time. Now here, as you know, you know, it's a, it's a new property. We've, I think I've mentioned this a couple times in the podcast. We actually got our weed barrier from Paul uh, and the greenhouse there. And so that was a lifesaver this past year. 
to just not have to worry about a new space being overgrown with weeds. And so um, we do still have that. It's held up well this winter so far, but yeah, mulching is good. We really enjoy doing that too on the times that we've done it. So let's switch gears real quick to, you were talking about alternatives uh, if you don't have a greenhouse or, or what, what are some of these alternatives that others can kind of do if they don't have a greenhouse available? Right. So some of these alternatives are not going to be popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not about popular. So if you don't have a greenhouse and you want high quality transplants, especially if you are a beginning gardener, if this is your first or second year doing a garden and I'm, this is not a plug for myself personally, you know, your your listeners are all across the whole country. But right. if it's your first year gardening or, or even your second and you're still you still feel like you're learning, you would be so blessed to have just to go and buy transplants from yeah. somebody. And mm -hmm. even if you have to drive three hours to get there, the amount of time that it takes to, to invest into growing seedlings you have to check them twice a day, you know, it's for months. So, you know, in terms of your time and the amount of money that you would spend, even if it costs you $100 and half of a Saturday to go buy transplants, you are going to start off with a plant right. that you know is going to thrive. You eliminate a very challenging and very complicated piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. particularly with things like peppers and tomatoes, those are tricky to start. Things like cucumbers, you don't have to actually start them as transplants. You could wait and just direct sow the seed. Right. And then there's a whole yeah. there's a whole realm of plants that are direct sowed. Like if I, you know, let's just go down the list, corn and beans and carrots and radishes and beets. Like mm -hmm. there's so many things like you could you could almost start a garden with out doing transplants. Oh, yeah. And if you just were willing to cut out just a few things. And the other interesting thing, historically, you know, talking to my grandfather, who they obviously did not have a greenhouse. They didn't have the technology for that in the in the 1930s. Right. You know, their agriculture was much more dependent upon things that were direct sown, you know, beans and corn. And, you know, like it's really only... You know, think about it like in the last 400 years is only the amount of time that, right. that we've had greenhouses. Mm -hmm. And really actually only in the last 75 to 80 years have greenhouses been economical enough that it made sense to grow vegetable transplants yeah. in a greenhouse. So we're, you know, in the whole you know, thousands of years of agricultural history, we've really only had the ability to start seedlings early right. for the last like 80 years. So obviously people have fed themselves well mm -hmm. previous to that. So, you know, don't discount that. But I would say if, if you're starting out and you are learning how to garden, you know, I think it's very, it's very common and I'm, and we're all, we're all in this together. It's like, but I, I, I want variety. I want choice. I want to grow 12 different kinds of tomatoes. My recommendation to you would be there's all these great heirlooms. There's all these great old-fashioned varieties that are super tasty. And, you know, it's kind of like I want to, I want to grow them all and I want to do it myself. Mm -hmm. But if you're just starting out, you might be better just going and getting whatever you can get and get them really yep. good quality. Learn how to grow. And then once you've yeah. learned how to grow, the tomato that you grow, whether it's a, a hybrid or whether it's heirloom, is going to taste worlds above whatever you buy in the store. Oh yeah. You may not be able to save seed from it, but that's a whole nother that's a whole nother ball game. But yeah. you will learn the basics of how to grow, and then you, success breeds success. Like the when you when you're starting mm -hmm. out, you want to be successful eliminate the things that are really challenging so that you can be successful and that will energize you, supercharge you for the next season. And then you can say, all right, now I'm going to expand my garden. Now I'm going to dabble with this. Right. But to have, you know, have some of the things worked out ahead of time would be super helpful. Another alternative, if you are in an area where there's a lot of other 
homesteaders or a lot of other gardeners, there might be someone in your community who has a garden or um, a greenhouse who would be willing to let mm-hmm. to start seeds for you. So that might take a little more detective work to try to figure out who that is in terms of, you know, they're yeah. not going to be advertising themselves perhaps. But I have driven around from time to time and I've seen like these little roadside farm stands and sometimes they've had plants for sale. So that would be a great thing to be like, hey, yeah, you know, I see you've got some transplants of some flowers. Would you consider starting some heirloom tomatoes for me? Because maybe they already have the expertise mm-hmm. and it might just, you know, it might be an, an older couple or might be a teenager looking for some extra side money or something like that. So that would be a great option. Kind of moving down from best options down to a little bit more challenging options would be, you know, trying to start seeds yourself and doing what I call the inside outside method, which is where you have grow lights, but you try to make use of the natural sunlight as much as possible. So every warm day that you get, put that flat outside, even if it's not sprouted yet. I sound crazy for saying that, but seeds Mm -hmm. can sense the light even before they've sprouted. Yeah, I've done that before and it it does work. Yep. You want to, you know, the time to make sure that a seedling is not getting leggy is two weeks ago. You know, it's like you can't undo that growth. So you have to be exposing them to lots of light before you think Mm -hmm. they need it. And so, you know, if you were to, even if it's not super warm out, you know, it might be a 50 or 60 degree day, put them outside in the bright sun and then bring them back inside and put them on that heat pad. So they're getting the heat that they need at Mm -hmm. night. And then during the day, they're getting the light that they need. So you're kind of, kind of trying to get the best of both worlds. And then on cloudy days, you could leave them inside under grow lights because it's not going to be that much gain. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call the inside outside method. And then the worst case scenario is leaving them inside under grow lights all the time. And you can do it. Right. It's just more challenging and you have to watch your moisture a lot more with, with dampening off and they're, they're going to want to become leggy. So you are going to have to spend a lot more time hardening them off because the taller that a plant Mm -hmm. is, the flimsier it is. And so then then when you go to harden it off to put it in the garden, you have to spend a lot more time hardening it off. I mean, there's been many times people have come to me and said, you know, hey, I I put this plant outside. It was really leggy and it just died. Like there's just, you can't, at some point you actually can't harden it off. So that's always Mm -hmm. a, a concern. But if you had a sunroom or a south facing window that would be much better than you know a dark basement you're going to get some natural sunlight you might still have to supplement with a grow light depending on how your house faces you know the ideal would be a direct south facing right. window with no trees blocking any light at all but you know if you had an east window you might can make it work with the addition of mm. grow lights. It's not ideal, but you could make it work. Yeah. But then again, going back to what we said before, if you can delay mm-hmm. your sowing seeds later, you'll have more light to work with. And when you go to harden off, you can spend more time hardening off in better weather. I would much rather be trying to harden off a tomato in May then harden off a tomato in early April. Right. Yeah. Or I agree. You know, because at some point, if you start too early, you're almost forced into hardening off mm-hmm. before you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this makes me like want to go plant some seeds now. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> but I won't because oh, Paul said don't do it yet in Virginia. So, uh, yeah, we're getting close, though. Now, I've got some ideas and I'm hoping I'm hoping to work them out this growing season about some trying to work on a, some kind of some protocols of how to start seeds in cold mm-hmm. frames outdoors. There's not a lot of information about that. So I'm trying to work that out. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to have that 
available come fall um, at the conference. But I've got a lot of a lot of homework to do on yeah. that. But um, another thing I'll mention too is you know I, I'm I'm real big on taking notes and and keeping really good records. Just you know a simple notebook, jot down what you sewed, the date, and then um, you'd be amazed how many times I'll. I'll refer back to, I'll like, ah, man, I sewed two different varieties of carrots. Right. And one of them was junk. And then I'm like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was this one. And then I'll flip back to it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even sew that one. Like, I didn't yeah. even plant it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no. Like, which one was it? You're so right. having really good notes is really important. And, you know, keeping yeah. track of, like, you know, frost and, you know, when you sewed things, when things came up, when you harvested mm-hmm. things. And you'll be amazed the local knowledge you'll learn from keeping notes. Like for me, like mm-hmm. when you look through seed catalogs, and I, lo- I love reading seed catalogs. I read them like some people read like romance stories or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm weird. Um, but I'll flip through catalogs and just, just for fun to look at them. But, you know, they'll, it'll tell you, you know, days to harvest. And mm-hmm. so that number is an average based on whatever farm that they grew that crop on. And so it might tell you, oh, this carrot is 75 days. And that's from the, theoretically, that should be from the time that you put the seed in the ground until the time you harvest. Mm -hmm. That's for things that are direct sown. And then for things that are transplanted, you know, the tomato might say 70 days. Well, that's 70 days from the time you transplant it into the garden. So the days refer to two different things. Right. For direct sown versus transplanted. But what you'll notice is, you know, for for me, consistently, carrots are n- never, I've never gotten them to mature in the time that they say. No, For all the varieties. Like, it'll yeah, say 75 neither. days. Yeah. And my notes are consistently like 100 to yeah. 110 days. Yep. So, you know, you start learning things like that. And, cause, and when that gets helpful is when you have gardened enough, you can say, I'm going to sow these around this date and then I'm going to harvest them around this date. And then after I've pulled all those carrots out, that bed will be free. And then I can then plant something else into that bed. So it helps you plan a little bit better because I I really try to get two crops per year out of Mm -hmm. all of my raised beds. Um, You know, I might overwinter something and then plant something early in the spring or I might plant something, you know, there's lots of different variations you can go through with that. And that's really helpful because it helps you know a little bit better how to plan plan a lot. Yeah. We, we're going to talk about that in another uh, episode, like planning your year, you know, how to grow years worth of food. But for you guys listening and watching, we actually do have a home centers of America planner where it actually has in there. It's, it's a daily planner and a monthly planner. And you can actually write down, there's a little section that says start seeds this date or this date. And you can keep track of all of that. Like when you're supposed to start seeds, when you're harvesting, what did you harvest? How much did it weigh? All of that stuff. So we'll try to remember to put a list or a link for that in the show notes as well. So Paul, you've given us a lot of information today a lot and people are going to be like darn it Paul now I want to go start my garden but that's that's good that's encouragement so any last words you have for us before we hop off here oh man no um I'm so thankful to be part of this little show and thanks for the invitation and yeah I'm excited to get gardening and you know try something new every year and this year's you know the the year I'm 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 really kind of leaning into more of the staple crops that's been a lot of fun yeah. I got wheat it's growing. Woohoo. So, you know, yes. I'm like trying to grow my own bread. So, you know, just different yeah. things. You know, gardening is fun. And, you know, if it ever becomes where it's not fun, you know, look at what you're doing and try to figure out if you can do it differently. You know, like try to maybe there's a more efficient way to do it. Or maybe, you know, maybe I've bit off more than I can chew. Or, you know, like, you know, I'm always a big fan of like, mm-hmm. do it. My garden is not very big. Like, it's, it's not huge, but it's what right. I can manage and it's what I can do well and it's enjoyable. So yep. I don't ever want to expand it to the point to where it's yeah. it's not fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a well-managed garden, like we said in the beginning, a well-managed garden can produce as much as a not managed garden. So, you know, take it bit by bit as a, as you guys learn and you can expand as you feel more comfortable in it and and have fun with it. 
Yeah. All right, Paul, thank you for joining me today. We really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's Homesteaders of America episode. We really enjoyed having you here. We welcome questions, and you can find the transcript and all the show notes below or on our Homesteaders of America blog post that we have up for this podcast episode. Don't forget to join us online with a membership or just to read blog posts and find out more information about our events at homesteadersofamerica.com. We also have a YouTube channel and follow us on all of our social media accounts to find out more about homesteading during this time in American history. All right, have a great day and happy homesteading. Homesteading.